Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theatre podcast series on all things theatrical. We're going to be releasing um, uh, for a week uh, starting this Friday, which is the 6th, no, sorry, the 17th of of, uh, April, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, Uh, And that will be available for a week on our website and on other platforms that Burning Coal has um, available. My guest today is the director and author of that piece, um, Lillian White. Uh, Lillian, uh, welcome and uh, thanks for for coming, coming and joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. You are in North Carolina right now uh, because of the pandemic, but you uh, were not there for quite a while. Where? Tell us what you've been doing of late. (laughs) Sure. So most recently, I've been living in Peru as a as a recipient of the Julie Taymor World Theater Fellowship, um, which is a travel fellowship for young directors to immerse themselves in um, in other cultures and other theater traditions that are not European. Right. So the focus is studying global theater traditions. And um, Peru is uh, uh, Portuguese or or uh, Spanish. Spanish. Spanish, okay. And so you've been learning uh, Spanish as well, or you already spoke? Very quickly. <laughs> I spoke a little bit, yeah. um, but all of my all of my contacts and friends and colleagues are are Spanish speakers. So I took some classes in the beginning and and studied um, to play catch up. That's good. You were, you were able to try it out on some of them in advance. Uh, so how long were you down in Peru, and and what all did you do down there? I'm curious. I was there for. I was in Peru for seven months, um, and in that time, I went to Chile for three weeks. And originally, the rest of my itinerary included Chile and Argentina. Um, so that section is now on hiatus, and I hope to get back later this year. Um, That's fabulous, yeah. Yeah, they're really different. I mean, it's such a there's so many diverse cultures yeah. in South America. Um, but in Peru, I was focusing on two experimental sort of avant-garde groups in Lima called Grupo Cultural Yashkani and um, Grupo Angel Demonio, or sorry, collect, uh, Angel Demonio Colectivo Escenico. Can you translate um, those for us? Yeah, so Yashkani is, is a Quechua word. So that's an indigenous word that means I am remembering or I am mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. And that group is an ensemble that has been working together with the same, I think maybe eight people, eight or nine people for 50 years. Um, or 50 years next year. So they do devised works. They have a really strong gaze towards and research interest in indigenous theater and Andean theater. Um, so that's, that's what their sort of emphasis on thinking and remembering is. Um, and they've also been sort of at the forefront of developing theater during Peru's internal conflict and, and during Peru's Truth and Reconciliation commission afterwards. So they have a, um, a sort of strong social project as well. Are they um, publicly subsidized? Uh, does the government support them at all? I think they do for some, for some projects. And now recently, I, I didn't, I don't have a complete understanding of, of how projects are funded, in Peru, but it was, 
it did seem to be a lot more sort of project specific and mm -hmm. and artists would get funding for um you know one project to go up at, at one place or another rather than funding groups over over several years very interesting in the second group um the second group called Angel Demonio is um, the artistic director, uh, Ricardo Delgado, studied with Yoshkani and is sort of out of that lineage. And his group is smaller, it's uh, four people right now. Mm -hmm. And they do, they do similar work in that they draw on a lot of Peruvian folklore, but they do a lot of their work in public spaces. Um, and they use alternative spaces, um, both sort of streets as well as historical sites. Um, and they have a big, they also have a social sort of dimension, a very strong social interest in their work in terms of, um, you know, reaching people who might not necessarily go to the theater or think of yeah. the theater. Yeah. I'm uh, fascinated because wh what you're describing sounds a lot like the kind of work that was being done in the United States in the late 1960s and early 70s uh, and that has somewhat fallen, um, fallen out of uh, favor, I guess, culturally. Um, uh, is there a, an acknowledgement of that uh, in, in Peru? Do they acknowledge that this is a, a tradition that is not universally um, practiced now or, or are they? Yeah. yeah, I would say they definitely are part of a lineage and they frame themselves as part of a lineage that includes you know, the, the living theater that includes um, Eugenio Barba and, and Grotowski. Mm -hmm. um, Brecht was really important for Yashkani. And in the 70s, 60s and 70s, they were participating in a lot of conferences and workshops that did have these international crossroads. And it, it, it's really exciting to me to sort of trace these points of contact um, between different groups that have been an inspiration to me um, sort of from afar in books and and you know, in archives. Um, and I, I actually learned about Yoshkani from Double Edge Theater in Massachusetts, which is, which is similar in terms of being an ensemble yeah. based company. So there is some of some of that. Um, uh, the uh, uh, when I first moved to New York, uh, the first thing I did there was work with uh, uh, Julian Beck's son uh, in a play. Uh, I'll tell you more about that offline. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, so and and I bring that up in the middle of a discussion of Peter Pan and Wendy for two reasons. One is that you're going to be directing our production of Evita uh, yes. in the, uh, opening in December, hopefully. Knock on wood. Um, and so, um, I, I, you know, I know that you have been looking into the possibility of, of shifting some of your studies uh, under that fellowship um, to Argentina. Um, yeah. Do you want to say anything about that right now, or is that too early in the process? Well, I think one of the, one of the things that's interesting to me about the countries that I picked is that um, sort of in the, in the big zoomed out view argentina and chile as well have a lot more european influence and a lot more western influence and i mostly heard about that um from other artists who were speaking to the theater scenes which are both much bigger in buenos aires and santiago sure. um and peru's theater scene especially this sort of the the more independent theater scene i guess i'd say has a really strong connection with um with indigenous culture and with indigenous folklore, which which it has a lot of a lot. I mean, 
a lot, a lot has been lost to, you know, colonization and, and commerce, but um, a lot has survived as well. And so I think I'm, I'm curious to see what the sort of mix of cultural influences is like in, in Buenos Aires. Um, yeah. Because I think that that informs the sort of cultural, you know, fabric of the world, but also, um, you know, perhaps the politics as well. Sure. She, she was a revolutionary in many ways. Uh, uh, Ava Perón, and, and although her husband was, um, um, <clears throat> was less so, I think uh, he was the one with the real power, but she um, was able to, to leverage some of her um, uh, convictions into some advances in the, in the culture and, and mm-hmm. also hide some of the, the bad things <laughs> that were going on behind those, uh, um, what we might call identity politics today, I guess. Uh, so let's uh, shift over and talk about uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, which, uh, which seems to keep coming back over and over again. <laughs> this was, uh, was this your first, uh, first professional job out of uh, college? I know it was fairly it was. Simple. Yeah, it was. Do you want to just very briefly tell us a little bit about the process of putting that together, of how how you made that happen so and made it happen so well? I might say. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I think so. That project grew out of working at Burning Coal for a semester or a, a, yes, half, half a season prior, mm-hmm. and getting to know some of the artists like Robin Harris, who became really crucial collaborators, mm-hmm. um, and so it definitely grew out of relationships that existed before. And in terms of the process, we, we wanted it to be a devised project, which you and I talked about. And, and so in, you know, for people who maybe haven't heard of devising before, it's a process that doesn't necessarily start with a script as the core text, pre, predefined text. And what does it start with, uh, if, if not a script? Everybody, I think, has that one image in their mind of how a theater makes a play, but how, how, does, how do you start if you don't have a script? Um, well, in this case, we started, we started with, the, with the story by J.M. Barry, so everyone knew that as a jumping off point, but then um, a devising process, and this devising process included isolating images and then creating images with the actors creating images through movement and improvisation um, and sort of, you can almost think of it like choreography or, or braiding together um, movement and music mm-hmm. as well as text. And that all of those pieces are evolving and being developed and changing alongside each other rather than the text being sort of a fixed thing. Where do the images come from? Is, is that something that you bring into the room with you, um, either in physical or uh, intellectual form, or, or is it uh, something that the actors or the designers contribute or all of the above? All the above. And what was really exciting, so for example, I remember we did a workshop, I think in May, with about half the cast to sort of, and with Robin Harris, our choreographer, yeah. to test out some movement ideas, um, to test out flight ideas because we didn't use any rigging or anything like that. It was all acrobatics. Um, and so I brought in some images from the text. So for example, one image that I've always really loved is I think it's in chapter two of the book where the mother, Mrs. Darling is, is folding the thoughts of her children and tidying their minds as she's putting them to bed <laughs> and is described as though she's tidying a room. Um, 
and then it, it describes how children wake up to sort of find their their room and their minds reordered for the new day um, and so that was an image that that we explored some in the workshop and you know in the so I, I would pitch that and then the actors would have a lot of ideas and then also our Peter Pan who came in a little bit later I think around June um, Alex Silver the first actor who played Peter Pan did a lot of research as well and and really I think identified and loved the the whole mythology around birds and Peter Pan as a descendant of birds or yeah. a, someone who's fallen from the nest um, and so he he talked about that a lot with me and wanted to include certain um, movement qualities and little isolated pictures that were a little bit more bird-like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course the design, you know, Robin Harris, the choreographer, the designers had lots of ideas. So it's a, it was a really rich process. And, and because there's so many um, inspirations, it's, it's, it's longer, I think sometimes, and it's a very long process of creating and then editing back down and creating and revising whittling. For those who don't know, uh, I should say that Robin Harris was the um, theater, uh, or sorry, the dance uh, um, teacher at uh, in North Carolina State University for 30 years. She retired just a couple of years ago, um, way too soon, I think, but yeah. uh, but she's, uh, she's an extraordinary person and, and really um, uh, one of the great artists in our area, I think. I, um, I, I think she's thinking of moving out of the area now, which is disconcerting. But uh, anyway, um, so um, so so you've got the images and the companies, uh, you know, exploring them, playing with them. Then there there must be an editing process, though. Uh, how does that happen? Absolutely. So in this process, it happened where I I think so maybe July to. October-ish, something like that, would was revising the script. And a lot of our script came directly from J.M. Barry's um, text. So taking his text, and for me, I sort of make a map. So I have a map, <clears throat> excuse me, of the of pieces of language, images, um, images that have been recycled. So for example, one thing Robin did that was really amazing was she went through and she picked out for, I think, the five darling or all of the Darling family and Tinkerbell, maybe. Yeah. Um, like tiny little phrases from the book, like, you know, father pointing with his hand, um, or the way that John would turn with a telescope. Yes. And he stitched these together into little, little co tiny choreographies for each character. Right. And so those movement pieces became a vocabulary that could be recycled and recycled throughout the play. So in the map, there would be pieces of text, images, you know, an idea for a scenic transition that would be part of the storytelling, mm -hmm. um, a lullaby that we used, a later sort of um, remix of the lullaby, and all of this is put into an order. And then in the first week with the full cast, the first week of our process, we sort of went back to the devising drawing board and really improvised some of the scenes. So instead of instead of memorizing first and coming in and sort of diving into the psychology of, of the text, um, I would give, so for example, I would give the, the Lost Boys the assignment to use a certain set of objects and a certain piece of music and to construct a little house. And they could find all of the, you know, bickering and teasing and dynamics, sort of brotherly dynamics that they wanted to inside of those. Yeah, yeah, that's, 
Fantastic. Uh, and eventually a script does emerge. And, and so um, the, the spoken word uh, aspect of, of the broader language that you're creating for the play um, comes into play. Is, is most of it drawn from um, Barry's uh, writings or uh, is this one is yeah. this one is is mostly drawn from the, the novel which yeah. predates the play that he wrote, and then also some of his letters and journals, because he has just such a unique <laughs> literary voice. Um, and there were some other sort of snippets of text that I found, especially for the, the darling parents. There's a scene that we include that in the middle of the children's adventures in Neverland, we cut back to the darling family and the, the sort of tensions they're having yeah. in processing their grief and figuring out how they're going to find their kids. Yeah. And that was taken from a different little script that he wrote. I thought that uh, that was one of the, one of the, I won't say the most effective things because much of the play was very effective, but, um, but there was something about the dynamic uh, that was happening in the house uh, when the child disappears that, um, that felt uh, very accurate and, and, um, kind of uh, hard hitting, you know, um, mm -hmm. as if we had suddenly um, uh, shifted over into a, um, a European art, art house film or something <laughs> like that. And uh, uh, so I'm just uh, curious, was that uh, something that the actors brought to that? Or is it some, was it, was it his writing, you know, that, that informed that? Or how, how did that happen? That, I think it was his writing, um, when I was reading through materials and found that particular scene, it just or that particular the notes that he had, it, it really fascinated me. Yeah. But I have always, in our production, um, the story and this is common is told, you know, by an older Wendy looking back on her childhood and speaking to her daughter. Right. And so there is this presence of adulthood and this presence of of aging that um that is part of the story and that i i really wanted to include and i also think for me part of what um what really resonated with me and thinking about why wendy went back home and why she chose you know mortality why she gave up this world of adventure and this yeah. um this incredible you know imp that she found um yeah. i wanted to understand what why would someone go back? And if it is for relationships that have meaning, um, what are some of the hard parts of that? It's not just that you go back and she grows up and falls in love and has a family and it's easy. It, it is, there is the sort of loss and um, attempt to reconnect with someone is ongoing. Yeah. She had to, had to give something up uh, <clears throat> in order to make that decision. Um, yeah, the Peter Pan syndrome is a, an idea that has come out of uh, Barry's work. I think we talked about this in the past when we did a podcast with you, but I'm just curious to know if you, cause you've now come back to this again. Um, uh, when we took the, the production to Cleveland last summer in the summer of 2019, mm -hmm. back in the halcyon days when you could <laughs> you know, leave your house. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, so, uh, uh, so you've been uh, with this uh, story and this larger idea for a, a fairly significant part of your post-educational years. Uh, does it mean anything? Is there, is there anything to say about it that 
that uh, that you'd like to add to this uh, this discussion? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> is it is it a particularly male thing? Peter Pan syndrome. Yeah. Um. You know what's interesting because when we had the second Peter Pan, Hugo Beckett played Peter Pan, and they are a gender nonconforming artist, um, yeah. and so they brought. I think, uh, I guess what people often think of as like a tomboyishness or a sort of more yeah. masculine kind of playfulness. Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, I don't know how much this completely translated into the play because we were working on a very tight time frame that time. But, but Hugo, the artist, I think had a real sensitivity towards how masculinity is perceived and how, for example, um, Peter Pan's posturing sometimes in front of the Lost Boys might be an attempt to perform a, a certain kind of masculinity or mm -hmm. to, to, to prove that in front of other guys. Um, but that that might not, in fact, always be who he really is and that there is a more um, a, a vulnerability that I think is completely part of, of male experiences, but it isn't, there's not as much space for that in... Is that is that as that idea of never of not growing up though? Uh, that's the part that uh, that interests me so much because we. I mean the 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 one uh, sort of cliched example of it I think was Michael Jackson in in yeah. American culture, but there there are many examples of it. Some of them are, um, you know. I don't know about his personal history, but his public history was a benign, you know, a fairly innocent uh, character. But then there are the, you know, the people you pass on the road every day, you know, who yeah. are 50 yeah. and driving like they're yeah. 18 and just got their license. And uh, so I'm just wondering about that as a, a, an idea that's transferable among um, genders. Uh, I think it is. I think we might have a slightly more romanticized version of that for men that it's a little bit glamorized when men don't grow up or you know, men who need saving or something like that. But I definitely don't think it's an exclusive experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> both yeah. the desire not to grow up or the sort of living your life and trying to put certain things on pause, trying to stay in one zone. Right, 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 right. Um, so sh sh shifting back just a little bit into the, um, the discussion of Evita again, uh, just to sort of whet the interest of our audience um, for that upcoming production. Um, that will be your first musical. It will be. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you had uh, uh, musicals in your life that meant something to you? I have. Um, I've had musicals and plays with music. You know, people sort of include both um i remember my first i sort of fell in love with theater at our community theater in in florence south carolina and they did a lot of musicals so i remember you know i remember going to usher i think like three or four times for beauty and the beast just so that i could go in and see it for free again yeah several times and um and i really i i loved the sort of like sweeping like you're kind of bowled over by a wave. There's just something really epic about musicals. Yeah. Um, and, and so I've, I've always loved that quality of how much, how full they are and how much they can create a world and just really transform the space. I mean, I think theater can always do that. 
But when you have music and singing and sort of actors participating with every single part of their bodies and voices, yeah. um, it's something else. It's something more. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected Beauty and the Beast to be the one to... I wouldn't have either. <laughs> um, but that was, that was sort of the classic fair. That was the th- type of thing we had at, at that musical yeah. theater. It's, it's a lot of what young people get exposed to before they even understand that there is a um, uh, dramatic, uh, you know, or non-musical theater to be, to be experienced. You know, when, we, right. when we're taught about that, we're often taught about um, maybe Shakespeare or Ibsen or e- Tennessee Williams, you know, or these old, uh, old people from the past. Uh, and, and, uh, and then, when, but when musicals are, are done, often they are very up-to-date, very modern. I mean, mm-hmm. not that Beauty and the Beast is about a modern moment, but it is a, a modern uh, telling of an old story. And, um, and so uh, I think that those kinds of things are very meaningful to, to people. Um, Absolutely. And I think now, well, I think Avita's such an exciting musical because it's more, you know, of a, of a sort of rock musical, rock concert almost. Sure. Um, and, you know, now we have musicals like Hadestown and um, a lot of Rachel Chapskin's work that are based on albums and, and almost like folk, folk musicals, folk rock musicals. Yeah. Um, and I think it's exciting to see all the different musical influences that are the theater sort of building themselves, building itself around different musical ideas. Um, and that's happening on a big scale now. Yeah. Come, come from away uh, comes to mind. Yeah. It has music that's almost um, indigenous to the area of the world that it's set in, but it's also about a very big idea. Uh, the idea of uh, what, what a community really is. Uh, yeah. And um, so, so there's a tension in, in New York and in London and, and really all over the Western world in, in musicals where we see the, um, meaningful, you know, stories uh, uh, vying against the jukebox mm-hmm. musicals and things like that, you know, or the, the sort of yeah. cartoonish things. Uh, I guess that happens in all, in all artwork. Um, um, Lillian, uh, thank you for your, uh, for your contribution to, um, to Peter Pan and Wendy. I know that people are going to, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Um, I thought the production was glorious and I thought the imagery that you and Robin created with that cast was really fantastic um, and uh, and um, one of our most fully realized productions uh, so so congratulations on it I hope you'll join us in watching it on a Friday night or, or in the week to follow and yeah, thank you so much okay. for the opportunity and the opportunity is such a beautiful artistic community at Brain Cole Theater and a really a really vital one um, just hoping that can continue into the future uh, after this uh, this mean old pandemic goes away. And uh, uh, Lillian, thank you. I, I, the, you know, we'll look forward to having you here. And uh, in the meantime, be safe in your travels uh, to Argentina or wherever you, you end up going this fall. Yeah, thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening. Join us tonight at 7 p.m. for the premiere streaming of Peter Pan and Wendy, adapted by Lillian White, available at twitch.tv slash burning coal theater. Peter Pan and Wendy will be available on Twitch through April 23rd, so don't miss out on this chance to re-experience the magic of J.M. Barry's classic story as only we can tell it.